You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, I feel all right now. Hey, I feel all right now. Do you feel like I do right now? Do you feel like I do right now? Motivated. Good morning, and we hope that everybody feels good, and we appreciate you listening to America's Web Radio. And this is David's pick, starting out with a cadence that we uh, generally always do. But before we get started with our guest today, I want to do what we've started doing, and that's take time, just a minute of everybody's time that's listening in today, or whenever you're listening, be it on a podcast or be it right now, don't don't wreck your car, but just take a moment and peacefully think and thank God for our veterans, the service that our men and women over the years have given to our great country, and that they've always answered the call. And uh, the call has come down even in the past year for veterans to go back to active service and uh, so we uh, look forward to just uh, thanking our men and women that have served and and uh, our great country is the best in the world and we have the best folks in the world uh, we had a, a great great conversation yesterday with uh, Pete Mecca and uh, world some World War II veterans, which was outstanding. And today we have a very special guest on. It's been on before. But before we get into that, let's just pause for just a moment. And we'll come back uh, right after this. Thank you. Our guest today has been on before, and uh, he wouldn't be coming back if we didn't think that he was a super, super guest. And um, I reread all of the material on him, or the the material I'd been sent, and uh, with all the awards that he's been that he's received uh, over the years, if he were to put on his uniform today, he would have to list to the left. Uh, there's just so many uh, ribbons and awards that uh, I, I know his left shoulder would be bent down just a little bit. With that being said, welcome back to America's Web Radio, Philip Forsberg. And uh, Philip, it's a delight to have you back on and uh, looking forward to talking to you. And we'll be talking some more because uh, you're a Desert Shield, Desert Storm veteran. And uh, we want to make sure that everybody remembers Desert Shield and Desert Storm, even though it was a, a relatively speaking, a short war. It uh, it took lives, American lives, and we don't ever, ever want to forget a veteran, no matter what war or situation they were in. So, welcome back, Philip. 
Thank you very much, David. It's my pleasure, and thank you for inviting me. Well, and I should mention um, Phillips, a retired colonel, correct? Lieutenant colonel. Lieutenant colonel. I'm sorry, and uh, but lieutenant colonel. And anytime I talk to an officer on David's pick, I'm at attention until they will give me a parade's rest to sit down. But that's all right. I, I can stand as long as I have to. Uh, us grunts learned how to do it. Anyway, let me ask. I, I, I certainly remembered you being on and certainly remember talking to you, but um, what haven't you flown? And isn't it a little strange? Most people go from fixed to helicopters as opposed to helicopters to fixed. Uh, well, I, I did fly both. Uh, the first thing I flew, of course, was a helicopter uh, at Fort Rucker, Alabama. <clears throat> um, but uh, only about, well, it was at, at least at one time it was true, only about uh, 3% of Army aviation assets and troops are fixed wing, but we do have fixed wing. According to the Key West Agreement, um, Army aviation are those aviation assets organic to ground troops. And for whatever reason, that has spurred on a huge development in helicopters, and the Army has uh, really uh, propelled that. And I'll tell you, having started in the infantry, um, I can tell you there's no better, faster, more pleasant way to get the high ground than in a helicopter. And I, I guess really the uh, well, the old bubble sort of started it back in Korea, I guess. But the one that really made the name for itself was the Huey, right? Yeah, Huey was uh, was a quantum leap of an aircraft. You know, there are certain certain aircraft that are that just mark uh, uh, just uh, milestones in aviation. For instance, the uh, well, you know the the DC three. Or the yeah. C forty seven was huge. Uh, the C one thirty Hercules huge uh, quantum leap in aviation. They're still being used today, sixty seventy years after they started using them. And uh, Huey was one of those. I I really feel like the Blackhawk is, is another one as well. Although I never flew the Blackhawk. You know, you mentioned the DC three. That was the first plane that I ever flew on from Lubbock to Dallas, and uh, <laughs> the old uh, tail dragger. DC three, yeah. and uh, if you were in the back row, you had to walk uphill to get to the door to take the stairs. <laughs> but it was a very interesting, very uh, uh, award-winning plane. It it was, in, in many ways, it was sort of like what you could look at. It was very versatile, and that's the way the Huey was. Was I? I don't know that the Huey was. I don't know of anything the Huey at one point or the other wasn't used for, particularly in Nam. It was definitely uh, a workhorse, or if you would say, a mule for the Army. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I want to talk more about, because uh, it's amazing the number of folks that uh, have already forgotten are in some some ways I'm not even sure they were aware of Desert Shield and then Desert Storm, and I, we just we can't let any veteran of anything be forgotten, and certainly not 
when it's a, a situation like Desert Shield and Desert Storm. So what would you, your first impression of, of Shield and Storm? Well, <clears throat> you know, I had just come back from a year uh, doing, uh, uh, separated from my family in, in uh, Honduras, flying uh, radio recon my my first assignment in fixed wing and uh i i wanted to settle back into a garrison unit in the states uh, you know i'd been to fort hood before when i flew helicopters and uh so I, I asked to come back to fort hood and uh just thought i'd be training up to fight that great soviet battle that we were going to one day fight and uh cross europe and uh, uh, very quickly after I got to Fort Hood, we got this alert for this, uh, what was called Desert Shield. And uh, wasn't really, it wasn't real keen on separating from my family again and going uh, over to uh, Saudi Arabia. I'd never been to that part of the world. And, uh, you know, we all wanted to know, well, you know, we, we understood that, okay this one fella had invaded another sovereign country and we were gonna go over there and and show the flag or something we, we are, you know are we going there to attack him we're going there to fight whatever and um it uh so we nobody really knew how long we were going to be there and no none of our leadership would ever say how long we we're going to be there so we packed up and left and uh i think we got our alert on about the fourth of august no, I'm sorry. It would have been, it would have been some time after that. I think Saddam invaded on the second of August. It was probably sometime in uh, in mid-August when we got our alert, and we spent every day from then on uh, working from about five o'clock in the morning till ten or eleven o'clock at night, um, doing everything we needed to do to get ready to go. We had to go to legal briefings about deadly force. We had to go for inoculations and physicals. We had to go for dental checkups. We had to go to rifle and pistol ranges. We had to get all our records together. We had to pack all of our uh, organizational equipment into containers. We had to paint all our vehicles this new sand color. Uh, just And then, of course, Anything that was broken, we had suddenly become the, the Army's highest priority, and repair parts came flying in from out of every corner of the world. And now we had to fix everything that we had already reported was uh, in disrepair. And uh, so it wasn't until the 23rd of September, if I'm correct, that, that I actually left with the main body of our uh, force, of our, our company, um, we had a uh, a Boeing 747-200 from Pan Am. It was an airplane uh, that was titled the Clipper New Horizons, I remember. <laughs> and uh, I did some research on that tail number. That tail, that uh, that airplane itself had been hijacked and taken to Pakistan at one point. And a number of people died on. Anyway, I digress. And so we flew from uh, from Robert Gray Army Airfield to. Uh, um, Portland, Maine, I think, somewhere in Maine. We didn't get off. We just refueled. We flew from Maine to uh, 
Rome, Italy, Leonardo Da Vinci Airport, and uh, refueled. Didn't get off the plane, and then we flew on to uh, into uh, Dahran, Saudi Arabia. It was around midnight when we got there, and I was one of the first persons off the plane. And we they opened that door in the middle of the night in Saudi Arabia in September. The the heat and humidity hit me like a wall, and I could not believe. I, the first thing through my mind was, what are they paying to heat this place? Because <laughs> the whole outdoors was heated up hotter than I'd ever been in my life. So we, we settled in, and uh, they got us some real estate. We had an advance party that showed up, and they got us... Uh, uh, we we were assigned to uh, King Fahd International Airport, which is uh, uh, the airport for the city called Dammam. And at the time, this airport was under construction, and they had given us uh, this building, which I was told was the meteorological uh, station for the airport. It was a small concrete building about the size of, uh, oh, maybe a, a modest, uh, ranch house in the uh, in the U.S. Um, was 100% concrete, flat roof, um, and that uh, didn't have any doors or windows on it. It was just this huge concrete shell. And then uh, they gave us this huge parking lot that had already been lime stabilized for uh, paving. Uh, has not been paved at that time, and. Uh, we had all these tents, these very strange tents. We had brought our uh, GP mediums with us from the States, but uh, rather than use those GP mediums, the King of Saudi Arabia had given us these uh, Saudi military tents. And they're actually quite unique. Uh, they had two large poles in the center uh, and a, a beam that kind of went between the two poles. And then some... some uh, shorter poles around the outside. They were rectangular in nature. We put four men in a tent. And uh, what's unique about this tent was it had a, you know, it was canvas, but then it had a, like a canvas uh, sha uh, shield, if you will, on top of it that was separated from the roof of the tent. And uh, it was quite ingenious because it, uh, it absorbed the sun you know, and it left a layer of uh, of air. If you could get some circulation underneath, between that top layer and the and the top of the tent, it wasn't quite so hot in those tents. But it was plenty hot. But we had tents that had to be put together for a, a battalion of about I would guess close to five hundred, and uh, we had uh, we had to put drive these stakes into the ground into this lime stabilized parking lot. And so we got in this large uh, power drill, and we drilled holes for our tent pegs, and our tent pegs were actually uh, sections of uh, reinforcing bar from, you know, reinforced concrete um, that had a little crook on the end of them. And we had to drill a hole for each tent peg and then drive it in with a nine-pound sledge. And then, uh, anyway, and then once we were done putting up all the tents... We had to uh, build a, uh, a sandbag wall around all the tents, um, and so we had 
quite a bit of work to do putting up tents and then uh, building our little sandbag city. And uh, so all this time we were kind of all piled into this small concrete building, uh, sleeping on top of each other. And I remember it was uh, it was quite hot during the day. And uh, this concrete building, it would heat up all day in the sun while we were working out in the sun, filling up tents and filling sandbags. And then uh, right around sunset, when the, when the building was as hot as it was going to get, we'd go back inside the building and uh, try to sleep in this sweltering uh, uh, brick oven of a building. By morning, the building had gotten as cool as it would possibly get. And then we would go outside into the hot sun uh, while the building heated up, and we we worked filling sandbags and building tents. <laughs> anyway, we eventually got quite a little city put together there. Um, we were between the runways at uh, King Fahd International Airport, as I remember. Three four right and three four left. We were between them, and uh, we had a hospital nearby, uh, and we had. Uh, for a while, we had the 101st Airborne Division. Uh, uh, they didn't set up tents. They actually slept in the in the unfinished parking garage of, wow. uh, of the airport. And, uh, of course, by the time hostilities uh, broke out, the 101st had gone up a little closer to the front. Our unit uh, had uh, OV-1 Mohawks and uh, RU-21 guardrail aircraft. Uh, we were an aerial exploitation battalion. I flew the Mohawk. And the, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, as we were, we were attached to 18th Airborne Corps. We provided the uh, aerial intelligence for 18th Airborne Corps. And uh, General Luck was a commander, fantastic gentleman. And he, uh, so, but, you know, as it developed and, we were going to obviously go to hostilities. All 18th Corps' uh, assets swung around out to the west. To their corps headquarters was in a town called Rafa, along the Trans-Arabian Pipeline. And um, the uh, there was no there was no ramp space for our aircraft anywhere up close to the front. Well, let me ask you. Uh, a lot of people don't know this. Obviously. Uh uh, Mohawks are not going to cross uh, the Atlantic and <laughs> and refuel. But so was, were all of the planes uh, brought over by ship, or did some of them uh, take fixed wings to fly over? No, every one of them uh, was ferried. Um, I had just returned from the systems training for the Mohawk uh, at Fort Huachuca, Arizona. And so I hadn't had my in-unit checkout in the Mohawk yet, so that's why I was chosen to take uh, the main body of uh, A Company, our soldiers, uh, and and bring them to Saudi Arabia. The uh, so the Mohawk had a system, uh, side-looking airborne radar system in it, and uh, when they it it had uh, external fuel tanks. When we flew missions, those uh, fuel tanks. Uh, were 150-gallon drop tanks. A lot of people thought they were bombs. They were not. Um, but they could be jettisoned from the wings. 
but these fuel tanks held 150 gallons each, and then there was 297-gallon uh, internal fuel cell behind the crew uh, in the fuselage of the airplane. The, it had dry wings because it had been envisioned as a uh, carrier, aircraft carrier uh, aircraft, a joint with the Army and Marines, but the Marines never had the Mohawk. Um, so uh, it was originally designed uh, to be a maximum gross weight of 12,500 uh, 12, pounds. But um, as things developed with the Army, uh, you know, it was developed in the uh, early 60s, late 50s, early 60s, and it saw service in Vietnam. The Army saw the utility of the Mohawk, and they began to add more and more things onto it. And uh, it was, I think, we were flying at somewhere around 18,900 pounds when we got there. So in order to ferry the aircraft, they would take the side-looking airborne radar system out of it, which was quite heavy, and they would ship that. And then they would take off the 150-gallon drop tanks, and they would put on 300-gallon drop tanks. So it had 600 gallons of external fuel and, and uh, close to 300 internal. And so with that, the Mohawk would ferry, I guess, I wasn't on the flight because I hadn't been hadn't been through the unit checkout in the airplane yet, uh, but I believe they went to uh, Maine again, then uh, Gander, Newfoundland, uh, Thule, Greenland, uh, Reykjavik, Iceland, into Scotland, over to Germany, and then on down uh, through Turkey. No, I guess they went through Egypt to get over. But, um, yeah, it was. Uh, I understand it was quite a journey you know, going across the North Atlantic they all had uh, these thermal uh, survival suits that were, uh, I don't know, we give them an extra 30 seconds of useful consciousness when they hit the icy Atlantic. <laughs> but uh, I, that was not part of what I did. So, I, uh, so yes, the aircraft and, and our RU-21 aircraft also, you know, they took a lot of weight out of there, put uh, auxiliary fuel tanks, and, and that ferried as well. Okay, Army's uh, pretty good on planning for contingencies. Sometimes. Uh, let me ask, uh, with the Mohawk, what effect... We know that the attack helicopters uh, had problems in the desert, in the sand, and the uh, blades would be eaten up, literally, by the sand. And what about the uh, Mohawk? Did it? Uh, when did it suffer problems, or did it suffer problems? I don't recall any environmental problems that we had with the with the Mohawk. Um, it had a uh, two turbine engines, the same engine that basically that was in a Huey, a little different variation of it, uh, and uh, it had uh, a three bladed Hamilton standard propellers. They were pretty sturdy. Uh, they weren't susceptible to uh, erosion from sand. Uh, but the, uh, what, because there was no ramp space for us up close to the front, the planners decided, well, what we'll do is, even though we have the side-looking airborne radar systems installed, we'll, uh, we'll let you fly your SLAR missions with, uh, with the 300-gallon ferry tanks on board, 
and we give you a special permission to go up to uh, 20,000 pounds max gross weight. Well, here's an airplane that was designed originally to be 12,500, and now we're flying at 20,000 pounds. Uh, I'll just say, when it was, you know, full of fuel, getting ready to start a mission, it, we would, uh, we would, it was not a very nimble aircraft. It took uh, a great. We I think we had eleven thousand foot of runway there at uh, King Fod, and that was uh, was never too much more than enough. Uh, but we uh, and then so what we would do is we would fly up to a forward area and refuel the airplane, top it off, and then we would fly into the mission area, and we would spend six hours. Uh, fly in the mission area, and then fly from there to Rafa to the Corps headquarters and drop off our uh, onboard imagery for the imagery analysts, and then we would uh, refuel at Rafa and fly back to uh, King Fod. And and a complete mission doing that was uh, about nine hours of flight time, and that's nine hours uh, in an ejection seat. Uh, the Mohawk had ejection seats, and uh, was uh, it was quite taxing. And we would do uh, we would do one of these missions. Well, during during the hostilities, we did one of these missions. I personally flew a mission like that every other day, so nine wow. hours every other day. And total time, you know, from the time you you got your mission briefing and did your pre-flight and took off. To the time you came back and uh, did the debrief, uh, it was uh, typically about fourteen hours of duty. Nine of that was uh, was pure flight time. I, that's barely enough time to get a beer and go to bed. Well, there was no beer there. Uh, we had uh, they were very generous. Uh, I guess I don't know if it was Anheuser Busch or somebody makes us uh, Odules non-alcoholic beer yeah and uh so they they would send us these pallets of odules which we lovingly referred to as abduls <laughs> um but uh yeah that was our it was uh less than a half a percent alcohol or something that says on the label anyway it was, you know essentially had about as much alcohol in it as a glass of orange juice <laughs> And that's probably being generous, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, we so we had a lot to do there. Our our unit was was quite unique. We we had these uh, Mohawks that would do side looking airborne radar. They would look out over the horizon and see um, the ground, and they were. You know, AWACS is an airplane that uses flies and it, it sees everything that's moving in the air. The side-looking airborne radar uses radar to find anything that's moving on the ground. And so for weeks before any hostilities, we had gone out and flown these uh, SLAR missions and created a complete database of, uh, of everything that was moving on the ground uh, quite deep into uh, Iraq and Kuwait. And uh, so we were able to see uh, basically all their main supply routes, where the troop concentrations were, uh, 
and uh, the times of day that they moved and the routes they took. Uh, but then uh, our guardrail aircraft, they would uh, they did radio communications intercept. And when we got ready to move to uh, Saudi Arabia, all of our linguists that were in our unit that were would sit stations and, and you know translate uh, radio transmissions that were intercepted. All these guys were uh, Polish, Russian, and German uh, linguists, and they were all. We were basically set for uh, a war in Eastern Europe. And uh, when we got sent to uh, to Saudi Arabia, uh, it was a huge need for Arabic linguists. And uh, I recall uh, that there were a great number of uh, Kuwaiti nationals who, uh, you know, a lot of the families there are quite wealthy. And, and these fellows had uh, been in the United States studying in the university. So they were very good at English, but they were also native Arab speakers. And they were young, they were of military age, and they uh, wanted to do something to liberate their homeland. And so uh, uh, Philip, the U.S. Army took these guys, they uh, put them through a two-week uh, shake-and-bake class, how to wear the uniform, who you salute, whatever, gave them all uh, uh, sort of an interim top-secret clearance. Uh, gave them all each the rank of Sergeant E5 and sent them to us. And uh, these guys did the, the radio intercept, and they were fantastic linguists because, of course, they were native. Mm -hmm. uh, they spoke very good English because they were going to college in the States, and uh, and they were super motivated to do the job of, of getting Iraq out of, out of Kuwait. Let's, uh, uh, let's stop there and uh, take our first break and... Uh We'll be back talking more of Desert Shield and Desert Storm and want everybody to remember it. We'll be back right after this. Or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And you're back on David's Pick, and we do thank you for listening. And we've got a very interesting guest on that uh, Philip's been on one time before. And yeah, if I were a betting person, I'll bet he'll be on more. Uh, it's uh, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Philip Forsberg, and uh, very interesting career. And uh, we were talking about the Mohawk, and the uh, Mohawk... I believe is um, made or was made by Grumman American. Is that right? Yep, Grumman Aerospace, Best Page, New York. I uh, I used to fly. They had a Tiger and a Cougar for general aviation, and uh, I always loved that plane. I felt like I was in a little bitty fighter, you know. And uh, it had the canopy uh, cockpit, and it was uh, a very interesting, fun. It was more fun flying that than the. 150 or 172 so uh 
Anyway, the the Mohawk, uh, you know, I, I was going to ask what you did in Desert Shield and Desert Storm, if it had been done or it was done, so to speak, in uh, previous wars, but generally speaking, it was all film. So what you brought back was digital, I would assume, or what, what kind of... What kind of capture did you all have on your equipment? The, uh, the, the side-looking airborne radar system on the Mohawk uh, produced imagery on a roll of heat-sensitive acetate. Uh, the, there's only one pilot in the Mohawk. He sits in the left seat. In the right seat was a systems operator. Uh, they are originally... Uh, they're originally called uh, uh, aerial sensor specialists. Uh, that was the Army's designation. They didn't really, the troops that held that MOS didn't really like the acronym for aerial sensor specialist. <laughs> so they, uh, they called themselves TOs or technical observers. And uh, so our TOs would sit in the right seat, and they had a... Uh, uh, a Motorola Apps 94 radar, and uh, it uh, basically it had a sort of a light table in front of the uh, in front of that guy in the in the right seat. And the acetate would have a supply roll at the top and a take up reel at the bottom, and uh, it would pass over a, uh, a basically a heater bar. And this heat-sensitive acetate would get information from the heater bar, would produce an image, and that image would slowly roll down over a light table. And the light table would be where he could do some onboard imagery analysis of what he was looking at. Uh, it had a faint uh, shadow of the terrain, and then it would have a dark uh, dot for uh, anything that had moved while the aircraft was uh, painted with radar, and uh, so uh, it would it would give him a reference to the terrain where where the target was, and then uh, uh, we didn't uh, typically well during before hostilities we uh, we just noted all this stuff and handed it over to the uh, ground based imagery analysts who would. Uh, do a more thorough analysis of it, but uh, during the actual uh, ground war, uh, we would uh, get this imagery. Uh, we would find where the moving targets were, and we would send that uh, the coordinates uh, to the uh, Airborne Battlefield Control Center. The Air Force would have uh, a C-130 kind of orbiting that would be receiving target information from all various sources, and that would assign the targets to various aircraft for interdiction. And uh, I can recall the day the day we sent uh, the uh, the, uh, the Iraqis fleeing from uh, Kuwait City and the, the Highway of Death, I think I called in, I have it recorded somewhere, I believe it was 66 targets on that day I called in. Uh, just from one mission. Wow! And uh, of course, the initially I was uh, encrypting 
using this little uh, encryption table they had given us. I was encrypting the uh, grid coordinates. And uh, the, the fellow in the Airborne Battlefield Control Center was quite frustrated that the targets were coming too slow. We had all sorts of customers that were ready to take orders. And uh, so he said, just send it in the clear. Don't encrypt it. Just send it in the clear. So we just started sending targets to him. I guess, uh, you know, enemy intercept could have done something with that information. But by the time those targets were neutralized, that the information was sort of um, now the, expended. The C-130s that were circling around that you mentioned, uh, they had that uh, the cannon on them, right? Well, now, you're talking about the Spectre gunship. That's the AC-130. And uh, those are all in... Uh, the, the Air Force Special Operations Command, mm. uh, and they were there, but that the mission of that aircraft is to go out and shoot the targets. Uh, this C-130, it's called the AB-CCC, the Airborne Battlefield Control Center, and uh, it would uh, all. It just had. It was like a big staff office of, of people, re- you know, receiving targets from those who found them and passing the, those targets to uh, people who could do something about them. Hmm. So it was intermingled between the Air Force and the, and the Army? Well, ABCCC uh, was, you know, operated by the Air Force, <coughs> but uh, they would receive targets from anyone in DOD that uh, had the capability of collecting them, and then they would send them to anyone in DOD the capability of neutralizing. Hmm. Now, were, were, were your missions mostly daylight missions? Daylight? daylight, no. I almost never flew during the day. Okay, so all night missions. I guess they pick up the uh, the heat sensitive better than uh, during the day, right? Particularly in the Middle East. Well, our... Uh, you know, back in the day, the Mohawk, I think, did have a, a thermal imagery system on it, but uh, we didn't. All of ours was was basically radar. It did our imagery had, was not thermal in any way, hmm. um, so uh, it didn't really matter. But all the all the daytime missions were being flown by people of higher rank than myself. Let's put it that way. <laughs> So they could come home and uh, come back to the base and sleep like a real person, huh? Right. And I guarantee they weren't flying a mission every other day. Hmm. That's just mind-boggling. But, but the Mohawk, when we were doing those six-hour missions, uh, we had four Mohawks a day doing those missions just from our unit. There was another Mohawk unit there as well. But our uh, we were there... We were in the battle area. We were providing 24-hour coverage with, you know, four Mohawks a day, six yeah. hours each. We wouldn't, we wouldn't leave the target area until our relief showed up. Okay, so uh, your right seat was not a pilot at all? No, sir. Okay, and how much flak or, or ground fire could you all take in a Mohawk? Uh, I don't remember being shot at at any time. I did watch some pretty spectacular uh, 
shows from the uh, our brand new system we call the multiple launch rocket system. Uh, that was our stuff going to neutralize the enemy, and uh, that was quite impressive. Um, the uh, uh, you know as the hostilities got closer, we moved up uh, closer and closer uh, to the to the um, the border between Iraq and, and Saudi Arabia, and um, uh, as we as we got up closer, uh, one day they had given us a mission, and I said, "Well, now I'm in range of an Iraqi fighter, uh, you know, launching a fire and forget missile at me from from within Iraqi airspace." Um, and uh, but we did have AWACS watching us. Uh, they they watched while uh, everything that was going on in the air, and uh, we had a a code word that if uh, AWACS gave us this code word, we were to uh, get down on the deck as fast as we could and head south into Saudi Arabia for uh, for safety. And uh, I, one day I heard AWACS reporting. Uh, as we got closer up to the front, uh, AWACS was reporting that we, there was an enemy fighter a certain distance from me, uh, and then he was getting closer and closer, and he was just about to where he was in range, and then uh, the, uh, so I didn't break my track, I kept flying my track, and uh, the uh, then AWACS uh, said that he was, he had departed, and he was no longer a factor. Hmm. I said, okay, well, great. So I went back to uh, reading my novel or whatever I was doing up there. A few minutes later, my uh, radar warning receiver went off, and it indicated I had a friendly fighter at my 7 o'clock position. I was heading east at the time, and uh, I, I remember you know, scanning behind me, looking. I was very concerned because... The Iraqis had a number of aircraft, like uh, the French F-1 Mirage, and uh, they had some F-4s, and I was very concerned that, you know, this might have been one of them. Uh, as my receiver showed was a friendly, but, uh, you know, could have been Iraqi. And, uh, eventually, this uh, British tornado, uh, a British fighter, kind of pulled up in my uh, 7 o'clock position, and... Uh, he just kind of looked me over, and uh, he saw the painting on my tail that said United States Army, and I gave him a salute. He saluted back, and he peeled off. So apparently that was the reason that my Iraqi friend had departed, because the uh, British tornado was there. So if I ever meet a British tornado pilot, I'm going to have to buy him a drink. <laughs> uh what other whatever really stood out with you and uh, we're about up next to another break right quick uh let's take that break and we'll come back with philip right after this all right if you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference consider joining the u.s army with training in fields like medical care linguistics and engineering an army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. 
Hey folks, this is Victor Armanderas with the On Point with Victor show. Just to remind you, don't miss every Tuesday 2 to 3 live right here on America's Web Radio. And remember, I'm not angry. I'm just right. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, I am Roger B., host of the Locked and Loaded show on America's Web Radio. Join me live every Tuesday at 1500 for the best in gun news, gun products, and gun politics. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we're back with Lieutenant Colonel Retired Philip Forsberg. And uh, Colonel served in the Desert Shield and Desert Storm and uh, flew basically the uh, Mohawk which was, for lack of better words, would you call reconnaissance or observation? Uh, actually, it's a surveillance airplane. Or surveillance, okay. And uh, how long did it take you to get your night and day straightened out again? Oh, uh, you know, it, that was a uh, sort of an exercise in uh, extreme insomnia anyway. When I did, uh, when I did have a day mission and I was able to, to sleep at night, uh, we, you know, as I said, we, our tent was right between the runways and, uh, the Air Force would have, uh, two F-16s arming up in a pad not far from me. And so they would spend about 15 minutes in the pad <laughs> arming up and then, uh, at, at an idle, uh, and then, uh, of course, an intense uh, turbine engine whine while they armed and fueled in the arming pad. And then uh, and then you'd have two F-16s do afterburner takeoffs from the <laughs> runway, uh, which was just deafening in my tent. And then you'd have a period of about 15 minutes of relative silence. And then another pair of F-16s would show up to uh, begin the arming process. And they did that for the whole air war, as far as I could tell. Um, so it was kind of nice to be able to come back and, and sleep during the day when the F-16s weren't running. Um, even though, it, you know, in, in the in the winter time there, uh, November, it actually began to rain a bit, which wasn't. It didn't exactly bring the desert to life or anything. Just made kind of a Play mud out of the soil there, but uh, uh, we actually started to see birds for the first time when it began to rain, uh, and uh, it got quite cool. We, you know, we wore more jackets, and uh, I was never really cold there. Uh, but uh, and then it began to heat up again uh, in March, pretty good. So we actually got to fight the war in sort of a cool period. Now, you told me that uh, you went back, right? I did who? You went back over there, is that correct? Well, uh, after I retired from the Army, I did quite a bit of uh, flying uh, commercially for uh, a cargo outfit that did contracts with DHL. And uh, although I had vowed never to go back to King Fod Airport ever again in my life, uh, my first uh, international trip ended in uh, Bahrain, 
Kingdom of Bahrain, and they got me a ticket home to the States on Lufthansa, and the first leg of that was from uh, Bahrain to King Fahd International Airport, and I had about an hour on the ground to look out at my old stomping grounds, and so uh, my little vow never to return was uh, was thwarted at that point. <laughs> Yeah, I guess people learned uh, you you never say never. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, but at least you didn't. Go, at least you didn't go back under the same circumstances. No, no, I didn't go back there with any uh, intent of hurting anyone. <laughs> so, you know, I uh, I'm a big believer, and there's a reason for everything, and. Uh, there are no coincidences. What would you say would be the biggest factor that you got out of your time uh, in the area, in country, uh, during Desert Shield and Desert Storm? And, and is there anything at all that you use today out of that experience? Well, uh, I learned some Arabic language <laughs> uh, that I you know, would use from time to time when I would go back to Bahrain or Dubai uh, doing my commercial flying uh, or if I meet Arabs elsewhere uh, just some greetings and niceties uh, the uh, we didn't really have much interaction with the people of Saudi Arabia um, because they're uh, you know their culture is well, of course, it's not a heavily populated country. If you take a look around there, you'd understand why. But uh, they uh, they kind of keep to themselves, and you know, we weren't there to uh, to really mix it up with the locals or win hearts and minds or anything. But uh, the king certainly was uh, very kind to us. He provided us uh, all the fuel that we needed for our whole war. The tents, like I told you, uh, was it was you know he even gave us uh, a medal uh, for uh, you know uh, liberating Kuwait, and it has a little um, palm tree and swords, uh, crossed swords device on it that's uh, pure gold. So I think hmm. that was pretty now, nice. Philip, would you say? And and uh, you know I know there's really no way of knowing, but. To have come up with the medal and so forth, is that from his American advisors, or do you think that uh, it was from Saudi advisors that would have the idea of let's give a medal or let's do this or do that? Well, I, I couldn't say for sure, but uh, I have no first-hand knowledge. But I know the, the rumor while we were over there was, you know, is a man of great wealth, and we had we had uh, about 500,000 troops deployed there, and uh, the rumor that I heard was that uh, King uh, Fraud, I guess it was, had uh, made an offer to give a cash award to every troop that had come there from the U.S. $10,000. So, you know, that's quite a bit of money, uh, but he's sort of a guy who had that sort of money, and 
and then the, the counter to that, or the, the follow-up to that rumor was that uh, our president had told the king that our, our soldiers are not mercenaries. But, you know, a lot of folks said, you know, well, you know, speak for yourself, Mr. President. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, true or not, I don't know. But I do know he was very uh, kind and generous to us and very grateful to have uh, a bitter enemy like uh, Saddam Hussein uh, put to flight. You know, Saddam Hussein started that war with the fifth largest army on the planet. And uh, he, uh, he had 41 divisions of troops uh, at the beginning. And... In 28 days of total hostilities, and I think it was 100 hours of actual ground combat, we had uh, rendered combat ineffective um, 39 of those 41 divisions. So I'll take that as a pretty good accomplishment to do about a month's work. Well, you know, this this is one thing that I kept saying, and please correct me if you disagree, but, you know... What the hell did did he know about fighting, really? What did he know about, other than being a bully and, uh, you know, having any and everybody that disagreed with him kill? You know, he really was not a general or or, uh, or capable of, uh, you know, he was just a bully. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, he miscalculated, and he... And he uh he believed that the United States wasn't willing to do what we were quite obviously, in retrospect, willing to do. Yeah. Uh, um, and, you know, it eventually, you know, we, I, I can recall uh, that uh, at the time, uh, President Bush 41, his, his political enemies were making all sorts of uh, accusations against him for what we were doing over there beginning of the conflict and uh, they made him swear up and down that all he was there to do was to drive Saddam out of uh, out of Kuwait and so when Saddam left Kuwait we we had sort of painted ourselves into a corner where well we couldn't pursue Saddam even though he's a very bad guy and of course you know that led to future misadventures but uh, I do recall that in Thanksgiving of 1990, November 1990, uh, President Bush made a visit to Saudi Arabia to see the troops. And at the time, as I said earlier, we didn't know if we were going to go to fight or not. And uh, so everybody was quite anxious to know when we were going home. <laughs> and so I was I was asked to provide two soldiers, two enlisted soldiers, to go have thanksgiving with the president so i picked two of my soldiers sent them and when they came back i asked them what did the president say and he was very clear apparently he had he had two messages the first message is no one is going to spend one day here longer than he needs to and i thought that's great i just want to go home he said i said well you know what was the second point he said, well, the second point is no one is going home until the mission is done. And that had the effect throughout the theater to make 
all of our troops say, okay, you know, if we have to kick this guy's butt in order to go home, what are we waiting for? Hmm. Let's start kicking. Yeah. Let's go. I'm ready yesterday because I want to go home. It was a great motivation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, it was a. It was an interesting time, and I think uh, I. I don't feel like the citizenry appreciated what was going on over there, and and you know, like you just said, everybody was ready to go home, and yet over here. A lot of people were ready for and thought that we should have followed Saddam right back into his home and uh, destroyed him. If it was, if it meant going to uh, Iraq, we went to Iraq, you know. But yeah. we didn't, and uh, you know our. Storm and Norman, I think he would have uh, gone across the country to have gotten Saddam. Well, not to draw a parallel between myself and General Schwarzkopf, who's a great leader and a fantastic soldier, but, you know, he was he did not play in the political. And so that's the point. That's, that's the mark of a soldier. He does what his nation calls on to do. And he obeys the lawful orders that are given to him, and he doesn't pass judgment on the politics of it. Yep. Well, I we tell were, you, we were very effective at what we did. I was quite pleased and very, very, very thankful uh, to the American people for resourcing us the way we, they did. And so, if they want to forget, you know, there's a lot of days I just want to forget too. <laughs> With that being said, we'll let everybody think about that, and we're going to have to put the plug in the jug and get out of here, get ready for the next show. Uh, Ron Bachman and uh, health care, whatever. Anyway, (laughs) we've got uh, Ron Bachman coming up very short. Health care insight. And, uh, sir, you will come back, I hope. Anytime, David. Thank okay. you. Thank you, sir. Take care, and uh, we'll be talking to everybody very shortly. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.